Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hello, everybody. We're back for another Space Junk podcast. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space. And today we are one of the drivers of this podcast series has always been innovation. Uh, Dustin Gibson, my co-host and I, we get together every week and we talk about new things that are happening in the hobby of amateur astronomy. And today our guest is Ralph Emerson from Plane Wave Telescopes, and they manufacture, mass produce, I'm told, one meter class uh, sized telescopes in a in a way that I think brings them to the the public. And we're going to learn, I'm going to learn about this company along with you because I don't know a whole lot about them, but uh, they are a really uh, rather brand new company that has innovated a lot of new technologies to, that will bring large aperture telescopes to a lot of people. So let me welcome my co-host, uh, Dustin Gibson from OBT Telescopes. You out there, Dustin? Yeah, thank you, Tony. Um, this is one of our neighbors and, and a company we get to spend a lot of time with here in California. And it's actually the uh, telescope brand that I have in my remote observatory, the first one we ever built, and one that I still use all the time, just about every single night that it's clear. I use a 17-inch plane wave, and um, they, they produce extremely high-quality products. And I've seen, personally, I've been to the shop many times and seen the quality control procedures. And it is, it is truly remarkable, the attention to detail. And by the time things ship, these products are always perfect. But more importantly, and I'd say in this last year, there's been a, a massive just explosion of growth with the company. And it's for a lot of reasons, but I think the primary reason has been innovation that's come out of plane wave, both on the mount side and the telescope side. And I'm really excited to talk about that and how it's reshaped things here in the amateur and professional communities over the last year, year and a half. So Ralph, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, Ralph is a guy, uh, Tony, that I get to I get to see pretty regularly. He's here close by and um, plane waves sort of a sister company to OPT. We spend a lot of time together. We do a lot of marketing together and um, we really try to um, to help each other and uh, really, you know, drive the message home that quality is important and that uh, these things can be, um, you know, affordable even for for that top notch level for people that are serious about astronomy. So, uh, Ralph, let's let's talk about it a little bit. Huge year for you guys. Yes, absolutely huge year. Our our company has been around for about twelve years now, and uh, the last three years or so, we have been growing very rapidly. Uh, we doubled in size this past year, and we're looking like we're on track to do that again this year. Um, so in a, in a market where there's certainly in the last 15 or 20 years, uh, telescope sales around the world has been kind of flat, uh, we're an exception to that rule. Yeah. And, and I'd say that, you know, we've, we've kind of seen the same thing. And, you know, I've, I've heard that. I think the industry as a whole is doing well, but I have heard some complaints that, you know, there's, um, I guess it's a time of change right now in the industry and you're seeing, um, you know, not just with visual and 
imaging trying to find this this balance you know everything's trying to shake out and be what it's going to become but it's a little more rapid of an evolution than i think most industries generally experience but for us there's been we credit a lot of the success we've at least seen over the last couple of years to a, a lot of big changes that we've made within our company and trying to match that industry evolution with our own evolution yeah. what do you what do you credit uh, plane waves growth to well, I think timing and I think uh, strategy uh, certainly are the key things. Uh, you know, uh, our company grew out of uh, Slesron, actually. And uh, what do you mean by that? In the sense, most of the original people in the company, founders of the company, uh, spent most of their career uh, in Celestron. Celestron is a is a mast producer organ organization they produce lots of telescopes for the the consumer market and so uh, there was a, a feeling from the very beginning that we needed to make larger aperture telescopes more serious telescopes for amateurs who were more serious um, that um, could give them the same quality or high quality that um, that they were expecting and saw in celestron telescopes but even better for possibly research and other uh, work that they might do. And so uh, uh, in the very beginning, uh, this is what uh, the company created. Uh, they came out with a very innovative um, uh, optical design called the uh, CDK, the uh, corrected Dow-Kirkham design. And that competed with uh, the standard design in the field, um, RC, Richard Creedon. And it's um, easier to build, um, uh, gives a higher quality uh, images when you're using it for imaging purposes. And so the company was a very unique um, uh, company for uh, serious amateurs and also for uh, education at the very beginning. But <clears throat> as the company over the years has grown, um, we have been increasing the size of the aperture of the telescope, and that has brought us more and more into the professional and commercial fields. How would you characterize your customer base then? Would it be mostly uh, would it be mostly institutions or professionals, or would it be at serious amateurs? What would be the the split? Well, in terms of the split, I would say in in sheer numbers. We have probably more serious amateurs, uh, certainly over the hi history of the company. But uh, today, our telescopes are in some of the largest institutions uh, in, uh, that you can think of, MIT, uh, Caltech, uh, Carnegie, uh, all the large uh, 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 astronomy sites around the world uh, are considering uh, plane wave telescopes as well as aerospace companies. And so the product, the rather the customer mix of the company in the last three or four years has been uh, changing rapidly. But as far as um, um, astronomers are concerned, amateur astronomers, uh, our market is still very strong there. It's growing quite rapidly. As, as uh, Dustin knows, we are selling quite a few telescopes, far more than we ever did uh, in those markets. So I think there's, there's a, a more, much more interest now on the part of uh, amateurs uh, to get more serious. I mean, there's a number of companies that are out there now that have been doing citizen science with, with amateurs. And uh, so instead of just taking photographs, they're actually beginning to participate um, in scientific endeavors and others. And, and that requires a dedication uh, to um, uh, astronomy and uh, that is higher than average. And so as a consequence, uh, we're seeing much more of an interest in more serious 
uncertainty-lately uh, designed telescopes. So our 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 product curve, uh, the market curve rather for consumer telescopes, are growing um, really at the same rate as the um, uh, the interest in our larger aperture telescopes. That's amazing. So can you said you've been around for about twelve years, and the what was your what was your company like at the beginning? You said you were a spinoff, not a spinoff, but you you grew from Celestron. Professionals that had worked at Celestron went and started Plane Wave. What was that like in the early years? Well, in, I wasn't there in the early years, but in the early years, I can I can tell you from discussions with uh, the people that were there, it uh, it uh, was a group of guys who really liked astronomy. They really liked telescopes. Uh, several of them had actually gone to the same school where they learn uh, telescope design uh, together. They had worked together uh, at Celestron, and um, they had the opportunity or the vision to see this uh, when they were there. Celestron changed ownership, and and uh, the owner of the company uh, allowed them uh, uh, to develop uh, their vision while they were at Celestron and then allowed them to leave Celestron. So there was a close relationship there, certainly. And that so it was, sounds like it was amicable then. Oh, very, very much so. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, very much so. And uh, and we still have strong relationships with Celestron. We don't, obviously, we don't compete with Celestron. However, however, that uh, crucible of folk allowed, uh, you know, for uh, high quality work to be done. And as I said, the company found a, a very good niche market uh, amongst amateurs as well as education, educational institutions that were looking for higher quality um, uh, telescopes to do advanced work. And that pretty much was where the company was for about the first seven or eight years of its existence. Uh, and then uh, over the period of time, uh, we started making larger telescopes. Larger telescopes pushed us more into the research arena. Um, as, uh, as you probably know, to do real science work, you have to have a telescope of a certain aperture to really collect enough light. Uh, as that happened, uh, you know, we, we, as a company, we started morphing uh, and providing uh, services that had in the past not been provided by many other telescope companies. And it sounds like a lot of this is built, as Dustin was telling me, on very innovative ideas. And you said that you have a corrected Dow Kirkham design. Is that your main optical design or do you have others? Yeah, that is the main optical design. Uh, that certainly was what uh, kicked the company off and made us a little unique in the world. Uh, we found that um, uh, the Dow Kirkham lended it itself more to manufacturing. It's also easier to operate as a user, uh, less uh, alignment issues, and all those kinds of things, which, again, made it easier for amateurs and as well as people in education to use the product. Uh, that was the first innovation. The, the, the second innovation was not a design or technical innovation. It was the basic concept around our philosophy in terms of how the company was going to make telescopes. Um, we... Um, started the company uh, very much like most telescope companies where you're building a custom telescope for an individual. But uh, because of the Celestron background and looking at mass production, the company decided and uh, fortuitively decided that uh, it, would, uh, it would follow a, a strategy of manufacturing. In other words, um, instead of making 
one unique telescope, we would make telescopes that we could manufacture over and over and again. So when we design a telescope, we design the telescope and then we redesign the telescope to make it more efficient to make. And that has really set the company apart from other telescope manufacturers uh, in our category. So um, this was a, a very, very important part of of the company's um, strategy, and it is, I think, the principal reason that we're growing now, and it separates us from everyone else. When I was visiting Planewave last, I was asking about. Uh, actually, it was some of some of your competitors I was asking about. But um, you know, one thing I like is I've never heard a bad word come out of anybody's mouth at Planewave about any other telescope company, and I think that partly comes from everybody there being true telescope junkies, kind of like us. Everybody loves telescopes, and so nobody yeah. really has anything bad to say about any of it. But um, I was just asking, what's the difference? Because I see all these different measurements coming out of you know a lot of different companies. And uh, Rick, the uh, the CEO over there, was telling me, he said, you know, one of the things that we do that's a little bit different is instead of just posting the results, we measure everything multiple times. So when a mirror gets done, where most companies would call this mirror done, we mount the mirror and then we test it again. So it's tested and it has to pass that test. And then it's mounted and it has to pass that test again. And then it's checked for any aberrations, and it has to pass that again. And if at any point through any of this process, it doesn't pass, it goes back into being reconfigured over and over. So stripped, stripped down, reconfigured, coded again, redone until this thing is perfect. And I was, I was asking, why, if the standard is to you know, especially the marketing standard, these companies are just putting it in the machine. And if the machine says after it's coded, like, hey, this this passes the test, they don't mount it and then test it again because it's already passed their test and they can claim that. And he's saying, yeah, but when you mount a mirror, if it's not mounted perfectly, it can pinch the optics or other things can happen. And so somebody's not getting delivered a perfect telescope. So just because a mirror is great when it's laying flat in the chamber doesn't mean it's a great mirror once it's mounted. And so for me, I was just kind of like, doesn't it seem like you're putting yourself at a marketing disadvantage by having all of these extra steps that have not only time cost, but actual, you know, financial uh, cost. And, you know, you guys are spending money redoing these mirrors and making them perfect. And he's like, yeah, but we're not a marketing company. We're a telescope company and we're trying to make perfect telescopes, not perfect marketing. So we're not trying to match what people are saying they're producing, we're trying to make sure that when somebody gets delivered this telescope, they are truly being delivered a perfect telescope. And I thought, how like how amazing for that to be the model. And I think it shows, and I think that's part of why, you know, people have become such huge plane wave fans that own them. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think I think that that telescope manufacturing um has to be compared to things like uh, a musical instrument, like a piano, a fine piano or a fine violin. Um, uh, you can um, produce a whole lot of violins, but if the violin doesn't sound good, it's not going to sell. So the, the same basic quality control that, that you would see in, in, a, in a very fine classical piano or a very fine classical violin is how we treat our telescopes. And when you look at the uh, customer base that we have, um, they are looking for uh, high quality. We mm -hmm. certainly couldn't sell to top research firms and uh, institutes 
product that doesn't really um, cut the mustard. So yes, quality, like Ford said, it's got to be job one. We have to do that. That is a major part of it. The manufacturing concept, though, allows us to produce more telescopes and lower the cost of those telescopes. And that is why that is so very important. Can I get back for just a second to the design, the optical design that you have, um, the Dal Kirkham corrected plate? For those, for Celestron, uh, that was always their big, their big telescope has always been a, a Schmidt Cassegrain. And that's been their signature telescope since I remember them in the 70s. And one of the things that set them apart was also innovation. I mean, they were the first pe- they were the first people, I forget the owner or the original founder of Celestron, but they had found a way to mass produce a corrector plate uh, for a Schmidt-Cassegrain in a way that was affordable. And that sort of got them started. At least that's the story I was always told. And so in your case, can you describe for listeners who may not know I mean, we most people know what a Schmidt-Cassegrain is if they're an amateur astronomer. Can you describe this design to us uh, over the? Well, I know I'm not nice an optical. I guess I wish I could. I'm not an optical engineer, but a lot of it has to do with the actual design of the mirror itself. And it, what ends up is is that you have um, uh, uh, flatness all the way to the edges of of the mirror, which is the the kind of uh, of results that you get with an RC to some degree. Uh, But an RC usually has to have a correcting mirror to have this occur. We actually developed that correction in the Dow Kirkham design so that, so from the get go, you're able to get very, very, very high quality imaging. If we're, most of our um, amateurs here are imagers. And so Mm -hmm. what you will, what you will get out of a plane wave telescope is imaging quality that you have not seen before. And w- yeah, and so it has a, a series of lenses as well. So where the RC has no lenses, it just has, as he said, you know, a correcting mirror. Um, this has a series of lenses, but the benefit is collimation, where an RC is extremely difficult to collimate. You know, we sell our own RCs here, and it's one of the uh, the challenges with customers is collimating an RC. When you get it collimated, they're, they're beautiful designs, but it's very, very challenging to collimate. And a plane wave is extremely simple. I mean, the primary is fixed. So you're just adjusting the secondary, which takes a matter of seconds. And then once it's collimated, it holds collimation extremely well. I mean, mine shipped across, you know, across the state. I drove it out across this bumpy road to the desert and got it there, put it on the mountain. It was still perfectly collimated. So, you know, it's just much, much simpler to, you know, to use for astrophotography. Do you guys uh, know how you focus? This telescope is it done? Is are the lenses because in a Schmidt cast you're moving the primary? That's also true in an RC. Uh, how yep. do you focus? Primary's fixed. Primary's fixed. So how do you focus? So yeah, Plane Wave has a series of focusers they've developed. One of them uh, is the IRF ninety, which is a rotating focuser, and um, yeah, it's it's temperature compensating. It has a full rotator built in, and then so it's mounted to the back of the telescope, and it extends and contracts pulling the entire camera assembly with it, right, to bring focus on the chip. Um, so the mirror stays fixed. fixed. And then the other focuser just is the same idea, just without any rotation. 
So what's striking to me about all of this, and I'm comparing this with my experience with Schmidt-Cassegrain telescopes, is that with with the Schmidt-Cassegrain, as anyone who's used one for any length of time knows, that they are very susceptible to coma, which is where at the edge of the field of view, the stars look like little comets. And, mm-hmm. they, you know, but uh, here uh, you're saying this design, you've got a flat field with 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 nice pinpoints all the way to the edge. So that to me is is an amazing advancement right there. Uh but you're doing this, and we have to remember, folks, that these guys are doing this not just with your C8s class home uh, a telescope at home that you're carrying outside, probably you know with yourself just picking up the tripod and going. They're doing this with meter class stuff. I mean, this is huge telescopes. So I mean, that's just that's, yeah. we have to remind ourselves that we're not talking about oh gee, this is your little you know I've got I'm going to pull out my my trunk and 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 open up my telescope and set it up on a tripod here. This you know this is a little yeah. bit different. So that's amazing to me. Now another innovation that I'm told you guys have come up with is with your mount. You have a an L series mount. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Can you tell uh, us a little well, bit about what, that? Sure. What happened uh, with the mount was we were in a situation where um, uh, we sell our larger telescopes with its own integrated mount. Uh, our other telescopes, or OTAs, did not have its own mount. We were using other commercially available mounts. And we felt that we needed a mount uh, for this because we felt we wanted to have a package that we could offer uh, consumers, everything made from Celestron. That was, excuse me, made from PlaneWave. Sorry about that. Um, but anyway, um, what happened in the discussions was that the kind of mount that we were looking for had to be a mount that would provide a marked increase in accuracy. Um, we wanted something that was competitively priced, and we wanted something that could use existing telescope OTAs. And the easiest um, mounts to um, to use happened to be fork mounts instead of uh, uh, equatorial, German equatorial style mounts. So we started with the idea that we would build a fork. But one of the problems with a fork is, is that the telescope itself has to either be altered so that it can fit in a fork or um, you have to develop um, hol- a holding mechanism uh, that is attached to the telescope, which meant that you could only buy one telescope, basically. Mm-hmm. You can only use the telescope that was shipped by the factory. It's what always kept me from form. them, honestly, because yeah, it's a great design, but I didn't want to be limited to yeah. just the one yeah. scope. So fundamentally, we said, well, this this isn't going to work because most people like to use other telescopes with their mount in, in addition to the one they buy from us or whatever. And so uh, that uh, started us looking at a one-arm type fork mm-hmm. mount. The, what has changed over the years is the quality and the materials that can be used in, in a mount uh, has improved, which meant that we could support a telescope as large as 600 millimeter, 24-inch telescope, uh, with a one armed uh, sort of design. And uh, when you um, add that to the fact that we felt that we would use the same technology that we use in our larger telescope, um, which, um, you know, is um, a direct drive concept. Direct drive means that there is no gears in the mount. Uh, It's riding really on a magnetic uh, um, uh, 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 support system. And along with uh, uh, um, uh, pointing software and with um, encoders, uh, we could provide a superior 
uh, accuracy in a mount. And so we came out with this mount and announced it to the public. And uh, to our surprise, the response has been phenomenal. We just really have been just amazed. We build it now in three different configurations, a mid-sized one for that'll hold up to 200 pounds and a larger one that can hold 300 pounds and a, a smaller <laughs> one uh, that can hold up to 100 pounds. Uh, these yeah. mounts are, are uh, extremely versatile. Uh, you can use any OTA with them. Um, and um, the slew rates are amazing on these mounts, so it makes it easy to use for um, emerging uh, concepts like satellite tracking and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the software that comes with the mount is the same software that we're developing for our meter class and 700 millimeter telescopes. So um, uh, it, uh, we introduced it, as I said, about a year or so ago, and the success rate on it has just been phenomenal. And then as far as packages are concerned, um, <clears throat> because we make the mount and a telescope, we're now able to offer uh, packages um, that are extremely attractive uh, for institutions or individuals. Um, you can get a 600 millimeter telescope uh, from plane wave with, with mount for 85,000. And that's just kind of unheard of in the market. So Tony, we always, we're always kind of nerds on here, but let's really nerd out for a second on some of this gear. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so think about what, what he's saying here. I mean, we're, I mean, we get calls about these things every day anymore to the point where when these first came out, we really kind of, we really kind of hurt plane wave because they started selling so fast that it was, uh, mm -hmm. it really faster than we could make them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, people started getting frustrated because they're putting in these orders and they had to wait a long time because they were just, I mean, it was so popular so fast that none of us expected it to just explode the way it did. But, but let's, uh, let's talk about why. I mean, if this is a, a direct drive mount, I mean, have you ever used a direct drive mount before, Tony? No, no. I've always had, well, at least not knowingly. I may have done it with a professional yeah. scope I may have been on, but not, no. Usually it's been a worm well, gear kind of system. Right. Well, when you get you get rid of the gears, all of a sudden you have none of the issues that come along with the gears, like no periodic error, right? And no backlash. Mm -hmm. So you have essentially perfect tracking every time across the entire sky. This thing has no meridian flip to contend with yeah. ever. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, so it has to be balanced. But I mean, you think about this on a, a single arm fork mount, you can also mount two telescopes because say it has a hundred pound capacity on one side, it means it also has a hundred pound capacity on the other side. Mm -hmm. So you, if you can mount a 14 on it, you can mount another 14 on the other side of the fork. Or you could mount whatever else you wanted on the other side a of the refractor, fork. A refractor. A refractor, exactly. Yeah. So you could have wide field and your high resolution on target scope on the same mount because there's no limitation with the single arm. So it just like, it eliminated all of the problems instantly. Well, you yeah, simplified. Just, let me just, I just want to interject because we're nerding out real quick. I'm looking at your website and I'm looking at the direct drive motor page and on it, you've got a picture of the Crab Nebula and one that you are boasting had a 300 second unguided exposure. Yeah, the unguided exposure times are, are really very, very high. And we don't <laughs> we don't we don't even promote as, yeah, we don't. don't promote as high as you can get. Um, 
because people would not believe it. Uh, yeah. But the uh, just like the slew rate, uh, you know, we we have a, yeah. we talk about a forty or fifty degree per second slew rate, but we've had it up to one hundred and twenty degree. One hundred and twenty degrees a second per second of slew rate. <laughs> It'll um, kill somebody. Yeah, huh? you yeah, better get out of the way when you turn <laughs> yeah. that thing on. It's yeah. like, yeah. all right, guys, comes, we're getting ready to slew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here comes well, three hundred pounds. We're, we're never gonna we're never gonna publicly <laughs> say that or announce it, but it will slew at that speed. Uh, the only thing that kept, in fact, it may slew faster. The only thing that kept uh, us down was the fact that we didn't have it on a permanent mount, you know, and when you slew at that speed, the, 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 uh, the inertia of stopping the telescope. <laughs> Momentum can, is not your yeah. friend. Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. You no, twist no, them no, out. Not, not your friend. So yeah. the, 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 I, the, the, the L series mount is a tremendous innovation. Uh, I've talked to uh, several of people of which I won't, uh, won't say their names. Uh, but, um, they realize that this is a complete game changer mm -hmm. uh, in the industry because, you know, 50 years or so, or so ago, the, um, the mount of choice was the German equatorial. That's what it's been for a long time now. And uh, we see that, uh, 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 that, uh, that mount uh, 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 declining. In fact, we have, we're, we're announcing pretty soon here that we're stopped making our own German equatorial. And I actually use your German equatorial and it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it is a phenomenal mount. It's huge. It's very precise. I love mine, but yeah, when you released these, it was like, oh, this is, there's no point in having this thing yeah. anymore. It instantly became outdated. And I just, um, I mean, I really do think that you're right. It changed everything and everybody has to follow suit now. Yeah. It's one of those things that the second it's released, everybody says, okay, that's what we're doing now. We don't have a choice. Yeah. This has to be yeah. the new way. And there are a couple things that I think are interesting. One, that the standard configuration of this mount is Altaz mm -hmm. instead of Equatorial. Mm -hmm. And that... Um, well, it's It's actually designed uh, for Altaz. It can also be used in Equatorial. There's a wedge that you can get for the mount to use it in equatorial and and that has some advantages if you're primarily doing imaging it's a little easier uh, than having the rotating focuser sometimes because the rotator would derotate the field as you're you're tracking across the sky in Altaz. but i guess for people that are imaging on that level they're also going to want to shoot flats and mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to shoot flats That's i'm guessing exactly. okay yeah, yeah because you yeah. have the spider you, you, you have to weigh the differences right uh, and then we also it's also designed to be used in a in a, in a mode that most astronomers are familiar with it's called alt alt and this this mode is uh, of interest to people in aerospace. What is know. what is what is alt alt? Maybe you guys are familiar with that. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I've never either. Well, no. Yeah, it's a it's a an axis design so that you are. Um, it's it gives you um, more continuous surveys. For example, like if you're doing a survey of the sky at night, alt alt is the way to go. The most famous example of that was in the in the seventies. Uh, Kirk and Elmer developed a whole series of telescopes uh, for the Air Force for survey purposes. So Alt-Alt is really uh, designed 
that's really more used by um, industry okay. and, uh, and uh, not as likely to be used by consumers. You know, I always thought, even if I bought an L mount, I thought I would probably use this equatorial until I realized the implications for space. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, space inside an observatory, mm-hmm. you know, and this is something to be a real consideration for people that are looking, generally the people that are shopping for plane wave type products, because the smallest scope you make is a 12 and a half. Yeah. You don't make any four or five inch scopes. No. So, I mean, they start at roughly, you know, $9,000, $10,000. And so, um, you know, if these are observatory class telescopes and you're thinking about building an observatory, the observatory itself is a lot of times the most expensive piece, or at least one of them. And you can get away with a much smaller observatory if you go Altaz than you can with Equatorial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons that we wanted a fork. And it's also advantageous, again, for our other customers in aerospace industry, because um, the the fact is, is that uh, all plane wave telescopes uh, and mounts, uh, rather, are robotic, fully robotic, and and from the get-go. So you can have one in Australia and operate it from Michigan, if you'd like. Um, Our more uh, professional customers are inclined to go this way for many reasons. Uh, we're seeing a big demand for networks of telescopes, and they all have to be robotic. But you have to consider the enclosures. Well, you know, the enclosures for a robotic telescope are not the same as the telescope at your old college. Right. You're not going to have students running around and inside it and all that sort of thing. So you can have a much smaller uh, enclosure. You can spend more money if you need it in extreme locations and yet be within budget because you don't need to have such a huge um, um, uh, enclosure when you're talking about an old ass telescope. Mm-hmm. That's a big consideration, especially, you know, it, it really kind of changed the way I was thinking about some of our project. You know, we're building mm-hmm. observatories around the world mm-hmm. to give away to the public to use. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know a lot of the communities like uh, SSA community, mm-hmm. they do the same thing. They're not looking to build one observatory. They want to build 100. Mm-hmm. And if you think about dividing the cost, the savings mm-hmm. across 100 observatories from going from maybe a 15-foot dome down to a 7-foot dome mm-hmm. or something like that, I mean mm-hmm. – your cost is yeah. It's it, not. It's more than just dome cost. It's the entire closure cost. Everything right. is much smaller, right? And uh, it makes it uh, much more palatable to do. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you know, because of the manufacturing concepts that we're using, we're actually bringing the cost down. I mean, I, I, I mentioned the six hundred millimeter telescope for a reason. Uh, that's kind of the uh, line. Six hundred millimeter is kind of the line that the astrophysicists. Uh, say that you need to do real research, sure. real, you know, right. um, research. So, <clears throat> you know, in the past, um, you know, you were talking about a, a much more expensive half million or larger um, cost uh, to get a 600 millimeter telescope. Sure. Where now we're talking 85,000. What that means is instead of a hundred schools around the country doing research, you could have 500 or 800 schools around the country. What the innovations and plane wave really mean are, are mass production, are lowering of costs and maintaining high quality means that we're actually creating markets. In other words, universities that never thought about um, uh, possibly doing research are now thinking about doing research because they can now afford to do this. Um, commercial companies that thought that they couldn't have a raise of, of 
of optical telescopes because the time in which it takes to build these telescopes takes so long. I mean, you guys are probably aware of some of the larger telescope projects that have gone on decades. Mm -hmm. In the past, when you bought a meter telescope, you would have to wait three years right. to get this meter telescope. And that was the best of times. Uh, and what did that used to cost? Like, what would a meter cost three years ago? Meter telescope would have probably cost between one point five and two million dollars. One point five and two million. And what does a plane wave one meter cost now? Six hundred and fifty thousand, and we deliver it in six months. Wow! And is that the complete and telescope or just the primary? That, that is the complete telescope, including mount and everything. And the six months still isn't a plane wave limitation. That's because of orders that are, it's back ordered, right? Because there's already people that are. Well, it's it's also manufacturing capability. When, when we first introduced the one meter telescope, we were told you'd be lucky to sell more than one if two or, or two a year. In the first year, we <laughs> sold three. Yeah, we and, get calls about them every yeah, week. Yeah, we sold six last year, and this year we'll probably sell 12. So we have been expanding our manufacturing capability. And I can tell you um, from talking uh, with astronomers, uh, uh, serious astronomers at large institutions, uh, no one ever thought that you could get a meter telescope in six months, and we can actually do that now. And so... Um, uh, many projects that require more than one telescope of that size uh, have been thought of as being not practical. Right. Okay. Uh, but to be uh, fair to research mm -hmm. astronomers here, one of the reasons that some of these four, one and two and three and four meter class telescopes take so long isn't necessarily just to get the telescope. There are science requirements that they've got to meet too. And some, in some cases, and I'm thinking in particular, the four meter telescope down in Sierra Tololo, that they needed a 500 megapixel camera to be able to do the kind of surveys they were thinking of doing with dark energy down there. And that took mm -hmm. just that camera took, uh, I think about six or seven years to build. So, and, and they're not yeah. just making this off of, you know, off the shelf products. So to be fair to sometimes these science driven research driven telescopes take as long as they do because of the, um, the, the, the science requirements and the, the stuff that they have. And so, but I, I, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. They, the, but what has changed is, is that, um, instruments now that are available, uh, in a more COTS, uh, you know, uh, format that is commercially available product, uh, the capability of those instruments have accrued uh, improved vastly so that right. many of the scientific projects that in the past would have had to wait for an instrument to be designed, um, those instruments are already readily available. And so, for example, we have a project called Minerva, which was a brainchild of, of Caltech and Harvard. Uh, uh, this is an observatory in Arizona. They're using five of our 700 millimeter uh, telescopes and they're doing exoplanet work. Um, uh, they're creating another observatory in Australia, which will be a little larger, six to eight of our uh, 700 millimeter telescopes. And they will also be doing exoplanet work. Uh, we're, these are some of the top universities uh, in our country that are doing work with student-led work of trying to discover planets uh, outside of our own uh, solar system. Now, you know, just 15 or 20 years ago, this would have been only the most advanced institutes. Uh, you, were, you were talking about very, very expensive telescopes, uh, some of which may have required a decade in order to deliver. Uh, we, are now, we now have students 
doing this work uh, in colleges. We have several high schools that actually have uh, 600 millimeter telescopes and 700 millimeter telescopes that are actually doing uh, similar kind of research. Uh, I was at the AAS meeting, uh, American uh, Astronomical Society meeting last uh, week, and you have schools around high schools around the country that are actually have programs now with high school students doing real research that has been funded by NSF. So um, what has happened in the last uh, 10 years, uh, with uh, particularly w with the advances in instruments and with uh, plane wave and others, is that um, this advanced research, which only could have been done by the, 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 the top universities in the world, is now available to um, uh, smaller schools uh, down to um, uh, the uh, high school level. And that is really going to be a revolutionary change uh, um, in how we educate young people and the amount of science that is actually accomplished. Well, that is a great example of the kind of science that I think has been enabled by the kinds of telescopes that you're doing. And in fact, I've talked with Dustin about perhaps doing something similar with some of the telescopes he's building at OPT around the country. But uh, so with that in mind, with exoplanet research, I know being a brand new field that hasn't that didn't even exist 25 years ago. Now it's being brought to, like you say, high school and college uh, researchers. What other kinds of science are you noticing being done with your telescopes? Well, I, I think what has happened, as Dustin knows, is that in addition to astronomy and education, uh, the biggest change for us is the use of telescopes in other fields that are outside of astronomy. Uh, we've already mentioned uh, aerospace com com companies using our telescopes for satellite tracking. Uh, this is a, a new field that's growing very rapidly. It has to do with um, uh, something called Space 2.0. All of you have already probably hear about the news with SpaceX and everyone going into low Earth orbit. Um, uh, there are projections now that the number of small satellites that will be launched will be anywhere between 50 and 100,000 in the next 10 years. Um, this has meant that uh, tracking satellites, knowing where they're positioned, um, knowing about debris and all this sort of thing is driving a lot more interest in telescopes because the only way you can do that is through radar or optical telescopes. The other area that is growing uh, extremely rapidly uh, uh, and we are participating in is something called laser communication, which is very much related to this. You know, from the time that Sputnik was launched, uh, everything that we download from satellites uh, has been uh, a radio signal. This is, uh, you know, telemetry, which most of us are familiar with. The problem is, is that instrumentation, like we were just talking about, has continued to advance to the point where instruments are collecting gigabytes of data uh, every minute. Uh, the problem with with telemetry is it's it's not possible. You don't have enough bandwidth to download this data. So what has uh, been uh, offered as the alternative is using lasers to um, modulate signals so that you can transfer this data in bandwidths, which are much larger. So it's like your cell phone uh, going from 1G to 5G. And so um, those downlink stations are basically optical telescopes. And we see an explosion 
uh, in uh, this particular field, uh, which is going to be dominated by large telco companies and large satellite companies. So these are kinds of things that are exciting us. We're also getting into space now. We've got a couple of space telescope projects. Again, um, the use of telescopes in space um, will be something in the over the next decade that everyone here will be benefiting from all kinds of services there. Uh, one of the projects that we're working with, uh, with uh, Cal Poly and a number of other colleges, is uh, a space uh, telescope system, very much like Hubble, uh, but much smaller, uh, that will be available to um, college students to uh, use for research. NASA has agreed to launch these uh, space telescopes, and there will be a small network of telescopes in a few years up there, plane wave telescopes up there in a few years that uh, colleges around the country and around the world will be able to get time on and, and do research. So there are a whole lot of new optical fields that are opening up, and that's also ex expanding uh, our company. And as we learn things, as we are getting more technical knowledge in these areas, um, we, are, of course, are reinvesting that, uh, that IP back into all the telescopes that we make. Justin and I had a guest on, and, just, and OPT is involved in this pretty heavily, too, the SpaceFab Space Telescope. And they were telling yes. us, mm -hmm. are, are you involved in that, too? Are you guys? Yes, we are. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're going to be using, they're going to be using a, a, a plane wave telescope. Okay. It is their project. They're building the entire um, satellite themselves. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, crowdfunded and, and VC funded project. And, uh, our part in the project is to build a telescope. And if you guys are listening to this podcast and you haven't heard that episode yet, go back to it and check it out because it's an exciting, uh, project that they've got going on, building a, tel a space telescope that you and I, and just a regular Joe can actually get access to. So, and they are using, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he told me they're using laser communications for their telemetry as well. They're not using the, uh, uh, standard, you know, whatever the, the current telemetry methods are using radio and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Laser communication will affect all of us. It'll be, it'll be a, a phenomenal thing and we can, we can expect that to roll out over the next decade. So the satellite tracking stuff that you're saying that you're getting involved in th that requires pretty high slew rates uh, to be able to track these things, at least higher than if you're just tracking the rotation of the earth. So uh, what uh, are, do your telescopes come off the shelf with the slewing capability? Or do you sure. have to like, yeah, what I have to buy it, for example, yeah. here's what I'm thinking of. I'd love a light wave telescope to take to a rocket launch, set it up and watch it and just have it track the launch as it goes up. Would it be able to do something like that uh, as it comes up, the L, the L mount or the equatorial mount? Would either one be able to do something like that? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, yes, it could. Um we have software that we have developed for doing uh, this sort of thing. Uh, the issue is how broadly we make that available to the public, okay? And because um, some of the capabilities, as you can probably aware of, will have military implications. So um, uh, we will probably have a version of our software for satellite tracking uh, purposes that uh, any civilian can use. Oh, I didn't even uh, think of that. Higher, yeah. higher level uh, stuff. Yes, we we do have to be concerned about these sorts of things because of the military capability. However, however, I might say that uh, you will see more and more telescopes around the world 
uh, used for the purposes of tracking satellites and more importantly, debris. Um, there is a concept of the one million item catalog. Uh, all objects up in space now cataloged by the US, US Air Force. Uh, that uh, responsibility has been shifted over to the Commerce Department for obvious reasons. And um, um, worldwide, um, there is a concern about not only that debris, but future debris, as well as all of the small satellites that will be going up. Uh, clearly, um, observations by um, uh, amateurs using better telescopes than what are currently out there, uh, because we're talking about LEO, um, uh, many, many, an army of amateurs are probably going to be involved with the ultimate collection of all that data. Uh, it'll be analyzed by much more sophisticated companies uh, as well as the military, but the collection of the data uh, will probably be done by amateurs and as well as some uh, uh, professional sites. So yes, uh, as a amateur uh, astronomer, there will be a role uh, for amateurs to play in satellite tracking and debris tracking and all that. When I when I'm looking at your direct drive motor uh, schematics here on your website, by the way, folks, I'm looking at planewave.com. If you go and I and it just just to get a sense of how these motors work, well, we're talking about slewing and and tracking accuracy and all of this kind of stuff. One thing that occurs to me, especially in remote locations, the design has 24 coils and 32 uh, magnets that are part of this drive design. Does this thing take a lot of current, a lot of electricity to run? No, no, it doesn't. Uh, it's, we, we stand, we got to remember our telescope mounts are designed to be put in an observatory. Right, right, right. Um, so, um, we use a standard, uh, 110, um, uh, volt, um, uh, uh, situation. The amperage is very low. Yeah. I could just uh, imagine so. in a remote automated observatory, you might, power might be an issue. I was just we, curious. we've actually, we've, we, okay. we actually have people looking at powering, an entire observatory with plane wave uh, with solar. So okay. the, you, you needn't be concerned about that. It doesn't use a lot more power than you're currently using uh, with a, a standard uh, German equatorial. Yeah, and I can actually uh, speak to that yeah, because we, yeah, have that a we, have a, we have several customers that use these mounts and um, we've gotten some feedback from them. So customers love when they get something new to, to just kind of tell us about the experience and tell us how they're doing it. And we do have customers that are, that are fully solar. Uh, they have their observatories out in the middle of nowhere and they've been very successful. But, you know, you mentioned earlier about how you kind of undersell the, um, you know, the capabilities of the mount, because some of the stuff, if you posted it, I think you're right. People wouldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. But we had a customer that wanted to test and see how far he could go without guiding. So just just using the tracking of the mount, um, how far could he push an exposure? And he said that, uh, well, he sent us the photos, actually. And he's like, you know, I really was pretty happy with it until I hit 45 minutes. And then I thought, you know, these are getting a little oblong. It was like 45, 45 <laughs> minutes wow. unguided. Yeah. <laughs> unguided. And I looked at the photos and I was like, damn, like his standards are a lot better than mine. Like they're a lot, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at this. I'd be happy with that. You know, it's a lot better than the, the photos I post even. But yeah, I mean, 45 minute exposures, he was doing 30 and they were perfect. Yeah, wow. I, I think people are going to be very excited 
uh, when they actually look at the stats of our amounts of what we publish. Um, I, you know, we, we can stack up against anything that's out there currently, and we usually yeah. are far better. The other thing is, is uh, for amateurs in particular, I mentioned it earlier, the, um, the number of new instruments that are coming out, scientific CMOS, other, other uh, base chips, all this sort of thing will, will give people so much more capability than they ever thought about five or 10 years ago. Uh, so we, we, we are really at a, uh, a pivotal point in terms of innovation and capability. Um, if you're a very serious uh, astronomer, uh, now's the time you know, to start really getting involved because the, you know, we went for a long period of time when there wasn't this innovation that has changed. Yeah, I was, I would, I'll test to that because I'm, I, it looks like I stepped in with Dustin at the perfect time because these, I, I am just astonished at all the changes available to amateur astronomers now that weren't even just five years ago. And I'm, I'm amazed. Well, why don't we, why don't we talk about that for a second? You know, because there are so many changes happening industry-wide that you're right, Tony, like you came in at a time that's pretty, <laughs> pretty pivotal, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, Ralph, I mean, what are, what are kind of some of your thoughts? I mean, you see it from a different perspective than we do, but I mean, we're both all over the world all the time, kind of getting different views of this, but what do you think is happening to the industry right now? Well, as I said, I, I think that, well, two things are happening. On one side of the, of the coin, uh, the professional and commercial markets, um, the, the ability to, uh, to do things with optical telescopes has never been better. Uh, and plane wave is very well uh, positioned there because of our, all, the mention, all the capabilities I mentioned earlier. So that, that market is growing like crazy. On the um, consumer amateur side, um, there hasn't been a lot of innovation, but that's changing. I think our L-mount series, uh, the 350 mount, is it, just amazing. I mean, we will, we will sell more 350 mounts um, this year than we did in our entire history. Mm -hmm. of um, any other mount that we've ever produced. Um, it's just been phenomenal. Uh, we, as I said earlier, the, the instruments that we've now know about that are coming on the market uh, that are reasonably priced, uh, I'll, give any, I'll go in the education route. There's a couple of spectroscopes that we're looking at that are coming out of Europe. Um, I was able to share some of the specs of these uh, these instruments with uh, scientists at the AAS meeting, and I mean they were just shocked and and, and thrilled and right. excited. I mean, the, the, we're talking about capabilities that would have cost a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand uh, dollars, down to a, you know a reasonable price. Um, and uh, for uh, consumers on the camera side, the same thing is occurring. So I you know I think uh, that we're going to see a renaissance in a way. Uh, in interest uh, in astronomy. And, and I don't want to uh, uh, let us go too, too far away from the concept of citizen science. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me tell you what one thing happened at the AAS meeting. I've mentioned it a couple of times now. The AAS, the American Astronomical Society, is like the Royal Society in, in England. And it was for professionals. You had to be a PhD graduate and have several people nominate you to become a member mm -hmm. in the AAS. Okay? Right. Um, uh, last year, we um, uh, talked with the AAS about expanding um, the membership and expanding 
the services to more amateurs and to more educators. And they responded. And they've now created a class of membership so that any amateur now can join the AAS. This is a uh, unbelievable thing, you know, that um, they are now recognizing that citizens can actually participate in science. Um, so more will come out of this, but I think, you know, if you look back in the history of, of telescopes, uh, amateur telescopes in particular, um, and you can see that when the digital age came along and cameras became digital, there was just a phenomenal leap in the interest in um, telescopes because you could you could take unbelievable photographs now uh, with telescopes. Well, now we're seeing that um, scientific inf- instruments and things are coming down in price and in capability, and the scientific world is open to the concept of having people who are not uh, professional PhDs involved in their work. And what that means is that, you know, some people like taking uh, pictures, but other people like to really do science. That option was not available. Now it is. Well, let me just further, let me just back you up on this. As someone who has, who is a member of the AAS and who has worked with them for decades, I can tell you that the fact that they have added a new membership classification is a big deal. And you guys should definitely go check it out and become a member. But here's what I want to be. I, after all of my years in, in astronomy and doing professional research and doing science outreach, one of the things I am most interested in bringing to the average uh, amateur astronomer and citizen scientist is the ability to do confirmations of exoplanet light curves. Now, for mm-hmm. those of you mm-hmm. who are, are who don't know about this, what happens a lot of times with the Kepler Space Telescope and with the TESS Space Telescope is currently up there surveying and looking for exoplanets is they come up with candidates, candidates that might have planets around them. And then those candidates are sent to ground-based observatories for follow-up confirmation. That is an ideal spot for amateur astronomers to get involved with your own telescopes, because I am convinced that even though a lot of these light curves are very tiny, you can probably get 1% uh, changes in a star's brightness to be able to pr- contribute to these uh, confirmation studies that are being done by ground-based observatories like Keck or Subaru or Cerro Tololo or wherever it might be. So that's something I'm interested in doing is trying to get a group of amateur astronomers involved in doing light curves. And one of the things that Dustin and I have talked about is maybe using his remote observatories to test this idea to see if we can maybe get a hot Jupiter or, you know, a light curve off of something that's big and goes around its star very fast. Maybe we can get a light curve of that. So I don't know, but it's something that I'm very interested in. And I couldn't agree more with your statement about citizen science. That is probably where you are definitely leading the way in this. Yeah, I, I, three years ago, I remember talking to some the scientists at, at Caltech, and you know, it it to schedule a major observatory like Keck to do anything is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. they're highly <laughs> it costs subscribed. A lot of money, and they're highly subscribed, and you know, your ability to get any time on a, on a major time, and we got some unbelievable telescopes coming out, but your ability to get access to those telescopes is extremely limited. Uh, and I remember them saying, you know, it would be wonderful if we had a network of amateurs 
you know, with smaller telescopes that could do this kind of work. Well, you know, that was three or four years ago. Uh, now I'm saying you have the ability to do that now. If, you know, if you're really into science and you want to participate, um, you can afford a system that would allow you to do this kind of work. And that just simply wasn't available uh, not not long ago. Uh, certainly not at any uh, you know reasonable affordable price, and uh, and that is the case now. The other side is on education. Uh, I mentioned earlier we we have because of how we're making telescopes, we have driven down the cost of telescopes so that schools around the country, colleges, uh, um, uh, two year schools, high schools uh, can afford now to have an advanced astronomy program. And uh, one of the, the that, that is, that's been one of the major problems in getting STEM education into a lot of schools. The cost of the equipment and, and everything else is very high. We, we've now driven that cost down so that uh, virtually almost any school in America now can afford to have this kind of program. Uh, one of the things that I would like to see happen is those amateurs who are very committed to astronomy uh, get qualified to work in schools because you also need a teacher or you need someone who um, is dedicated to astronomy to work with teachers um, so that they can use this equipment and can have an advanced program in their school. So uh, we, we, you know, a lot of work, a lot of distance has, has you know, has been made now. And uh, so the next decade, I think we're going to see a big, big uptick in science education and also in uh, citizen science. Well, and, and it's kind of coming back to what you said earlier, a lot of what used to be custom and had to be was a lot more expensive because of the nature of just a custom product. But now off the shelf is better than what used to be custom in a lot of cases. I mean, we keep 16803s and 5100s on the shelf all the time. Mm -hmm. These are sensors that would have, you know, to get something that size with that pixels that large and that kind of quantum efficiency. I mean, we're talking that would have been hundred thousand dollars or more not yeah. that long ago yeah. so now you can get a one meter scope for a fifth of what it used to cost and then you can get the camera for a fifth of what it used to cost and you're doing research that's better now with off-the-shelf products than you could have done you know 10 years ago for 10 times or more the money yeah uh <clears throat> another another uh, obvious uh possibility is that there are astronomy clubs around the around the country i think at some point in time about two or three hundred of these astronomy clubs and some of the better astronomy clubs actually have large telescopes so you know and they've been gifted these large telescopes they could never afford to buy them mm -hmm. uh, but today that is not the case astronomy club uh, uh, could buy a large aperture telescope uh, could work cooperatively uh, to use it for all kinds of various uh, purposes. Uh, this is, again, this is an option that that really didn't exist um, just a few years ago. So, yes, the professional telescope market has changed dramatically. And uh, those folks that are avid uh, amateur astronomers need to take a look at it. Nice. Very exciting. Yeah, times. Tony, <laughs> I got I got to see this. I know that we're running out of time here, but I was at uh, Plane Wave. Ralph, you were actually traveling, so you didn't get to, to meet us up there. But I was there last week and actually it was earlier this week. And um, 
They had one of the one meters sitting there. This thing is 11 feet tall. Oh my God. <laughs> 11 feet tall. I posted it on Instagram, but it is just, you stand there next to it and you're just like, I need this. Yeah. yeah. I, I have to have this just yeah. in my living room to look at. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah I, I have to say that we, we, we are working on larger telescopes and we're working on, um, specially designed telescopes. It won't be out this year, of course, but uh, we, we, we are still pushing the edge on the design side. So you, you can expect more news from Plainly. Wow. This is why we get along so well, right? Yeah. <laughs> exciting, yeah. exciting yeah. times. Yeah. 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 There'll, be, there'll, be, there'll be telescopes designed for more, you know, obviously uh, higher research, but we're also looking at uh, expansion of telescopes in the amateur consumer market. Oh, well. I love it. Yeah, I love me it too. Awesome. Time. Exciting times, folks. Yeah. Okay. I guess we'll stop it there. I could talk about this all night long, uh, talk about telescopes, but we're running out of time. So our guest tonight was uh, Ralph Emerson from uh, Plane Wave Telescopes. Uh, and he is doing, the, you got to go check out the website at a at least at the minimum, guys, because these guys are doing amazing work. So check them out and uh, learn more about it. And of course, OPT uh, has all the stuff that they that they uh, also offer. So golden times, golden age of astronomy for just about everybody involved. So thank you so much, Frau, for taking time out to talk to us. Thank you. All right. Well, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, let me thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.